Go ahead. The left. Move. A. Entrance. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I recount my ways. You answered me. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your Lord. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your command, for you have set my heart free. Okay, good stuff there. Uh, let's see. We got, um, we'll read this day in Christian history, and then we'll get started in a couple other things. And Sergio's checking to see if YouTube is live, and Facebook is. Today is 23rd. It's the 23rd of July. This day in Christian history. Her marriage was very happy, but short-lived. Maria Dreyer. Hang on, let me tell Sergio that everything is good there. Okay, thank you, Sergio. Maria Dyer was born in 1837 in China, the youngest of three children of Anglican missionaries. Both parents died by the time she was 10, and the children were raised by an uncle in England. But China was home, and so when Maria turned 18, she and her older sister went to Ningpo, China, to teach in a girls' school directed by Mary Ann Aldersey. In Ningpo, Maria met and married Hudson Taylor, much against the wishes of Miss Aldersey. Maria was better educated than her husband and was just the companion and helper that he needed. She polished his rough edges and helped him focus his enthusiasm. Their marriage was a true partnership. Having spoken Chinese from childhood, she immediately started a primary school. When Hudson founded the China Inland Mission, Maria was the ideal person to train the women missionaries in the language and customs of China. In January 1870, the Taylors began making preparations to send their four oldest children to England for their education. A close friend of the family agreed to return to England with the children and to care for them there. Fear of parting was too traumatic for five-year-old Sammy, who died in February. A month later, Hudson and Maria tearfully bid farewell to their children. Maria suffered from tuberculosis and was now pregnant with their eighth child due in July. Hudson, who had medical training, knew his wife would not survive to old age. A missionary couple came to visit the Taylors to accommodate the new arrivals. A curtain was hung in the Taylors' bedroom so that Maria could share the room with another woman missionary, yet both could have privacy. During the night of July 5th, Maria came down with a severe case of cholera, and the curtain prevented her roommate from seeing how sick she was. When Hudson saw her the next morning, he was shocked at how she had deteriorated overnight. On July 7th, Hudson went out to buy some brandy that he thought might help her. When he returned, he was stunned to learn that in his short absence, a son, Noel, had been born. Later that evening, Maria began to hemorrhage internally. Hudson felt that if he had not been there at that moment or had not had the brandy, he would have lost her. The bottle fed the baby for a week. They bottle fed the baby for a week. Then his throat developed thrush and his little body grew weaker and weaker. They searched for a wet nurse, but none was found until July 20th. By then it was too late. Little Noel died that afternoon. Maria felt well enough to pick the hymns for his funeral. On the morning of July 23rd, 1870, Hudson could see that Maria was dying 
He said to her, you are going home. You will soon be with Jesus. I'm so sorry, she replied. You're not sorry to be with Jesus. Oh, no, she exclaimed, looking right into Hudson's eyes. That is not it. You know, darling, that for 10 years past, there has not been a cloud between me and my Savior. I cannot be sorry to go to him, but it does grieve me to leave you alone at such a time. Yet he will be with you and meet all your needs. She kissed him many times in tender parting. Just before she died, Hudson knelt beside her and prayed, committing her to the Lord and thanking God for 12 and a half years of happiness they had shared. He thanked God for taking her to his presence and solemnly rededicated his life to his service. Maria was just 33. How do you feel when you hear of a person dying at a young age? Are you ever tempted to blame God or ask why? Maria Taylor died at about the same age as Jesus. If we belong to him as Maria Taylor did, we would uh, we can share her assurance that God doesn't make mistakes. Should the thing that was created say to the one who made it, why have you made me like this? That's Romans 9.20. The answer is no. We have no right to question God's sovereign decisions. And that takes us right to the COVID-19 thing that uh, people are worried about all over the world. And, you know, we've talked about this in the church at least a hundred times, is that uh, if your day is coming to die. The Lord knew well before he created the first thing on this planet that you will live that long and you will live no longer. That doesn't mean to be stupid. As Jim noted last week, you don't want to stand on railroad tracks and get run over by a train. But at the same time, you know, there are certain things that you can worry about to the point of losing your testimony in front of other people. They need to see Christians are grounded in their faith and not worried about the uh, minutia of life including whether a mask, which cannot save you from coronavirus, is necessary to wear because they're ineffective against it. That's proven time and time again. But anyway, it's just a point that we need to understand is that living in fear is the worst bondage of all. By far, it is the worst bondage. As a matter of fact, that's Sunday's sermon, From Bondage to Bondage. Let me see, what did he say here? Oh, I don't want to get that right now. Um, uh, from bondage to bondage is the sermon on Sunday, and we uh, we have um, that really threw off my mind there. Um, it, it deals with exactly that. Are you going to live in fear? Because that's one of the verses that I quote from what Moses said at the receiving of the Ten Commandments. He says, um, "Don't be afraid." Remember the great display, the awesome and terrible display they saw, and he said, "Don't be afraid." Instead, you need to fear the Lord. So he's using the same word, and you'll hear this on Sunday, but it'll be a good for you to set your mind on it now so you remember what I'm talking about, is he tells him not to be afraid in order to be afraid, right? So there you go, and I'll discuss that, and I'll analyze it, and how that pertains to us as believers. But um, interesting stuff. Okay, I've got a couple prayer requests, and then one other thing, and then we'll get started. We have, uh, let's see here, prayer, re oh, I got two more things. Um, prayer request, uh, Siri. Uh, he has not been doing well. Uh, his wife said, please pray. I'll give you details later, and I've not heard yet from Gene, but uh, he's the one that has cancer, and he broke his uh, rib, and he can't lay down, all kinds of stuff, and he's just really struggling. Um, Melissa Skaggs is her home burned down, and all is lost, and so she asked for prayers on that one, and uh, uh, she's struggling because they have, instead of having a house, they have to pay rent, you know, and they, they, she just really seemed stressed. And I told her that we would mention her uh, so people can pray for her. And then uh, Ray Martinez is in the hospital on ventilator since 2 July. 
and uh, the uh, here I've got to turn that off. This is this is uh, that's why I told him when I was starting Bible class, and it's not Sergio; it's somebody else. But anyway, um, we have um, uh, yeah. He's been on a hospital in the hospital on a ventilator since two July, and they say that they don't think he's going to make it if he has to continue on a ventilator much longer. And so they're asking for prayers on that particular one. Um, then I got a, might as well read this here because it's Bible class and it was very nice. They gave no return address. Um, sometimes you get an envelope with no return address and it's somebody that's angry and doesn't want to uh, acknowledge who they are and they just want to abuse you. Uh, the other option is uh, somebody that really cares enough and does not want to be recognized in any way. And that's what this is. So our group is praying for his wisdom for you. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. Love and prayers. Prayer warriors arise. And then it's from Michigan. I'll read you a little bit of this. I won't read the whole thing, but just so you can get the uh, how wonderful people are. Dear uh, Pastor Charlie Garrett, I call me Charlie. I don't, I'm not, you know, pastor is just a title. Uh, God has brought us to a place that is uh, unprecedented in our lifetime. We don't know what lies ahead, but he does. We know that no politic formula or program can fix our communities and nation. And it goes on talking about these type of things. And then down towards the bottom, we appreciate your faithfulness to him and your calling more than ever. We need you, unflinch, your unflinching commitments to the whole council of scripture, not just what we want to hear. Stand firm. God bless you. Prayer warriors arise. No name. It's just wonderful. It's a, like I say, it's a little long to read the whole thing. But if anybody does want to read this, I'll leave it on the pulpit. And I might mention it again Sunday as well. But that's the kind of thing that's really appreciated because it is. It's difficult uh, even on a good day. Um, and how much more when you've got the stress of the world and, and people are really scared and they're you know they're having uh, uh, they'll send emails and what do I do about this and that and it's all related to something which you know I believe is. It's not what I believe. 650,000 people every single year die of the flu, okay? And we're at 600,000 with coronavirus, so it is no worse than the flu. Tuberculosis kills 1.5 million every year, and we're not even close to that, and the year is half over. So, you know, it, it just, this is something that happens in the world, and it is something that is being used to destroy nations and to malign people. So, you know, once again, the state of fear. Um, one more thing we have. Uh, I said there'd be one more thing, and then we'll pray and we'll get started. I wanted to thank personally Suzanne, okay? She, I thought when she emailed me that she, she said something about the Book of Ruth, and I'm going to have it bound and blah, blah, blah. And um, she, uh, she, so I thought that she, she said, I want to send you one as well. And I'm thinking I'm going to get the Book of Ruth that's bound, okay, in note form. I got the entire Everything that I've ever published, she had bound. Now, I want you to know, this is just one thing. She, I got two boxes, this big this morning, and the third box, which you see, is this. I couldn't bring the other ones because they're in the, I would have to put them in the back of the truck. And the truck, it rained, obviously, really, really hard today, and it would have been ruined. So I got to wait and bring them on a day when it's not raining. But this is the book of Philippians. Wow. This is the book of Colossians. Now imagine Genesis, you know, uh, this is 2 Peter. This is 1 Thessalonians. That's all I could bring today with the room in my car. She bound every single thing that I have typed, every commentary from every book of the Bible. And this is done. Wade Nolan, who uh, he's a friend of mine. He's out in Washington. He and uh, Maya, 
who's in, I'm, I'm going to get the wrong country, Serbia or, or Yugoslavia. I'm sorry, Maya, I forgot what country you're in. But they took everything that I have done and they put it into PDF format. So you can click on one link on superiorword.org and you can get the entire PDF of anything I've ever typed from that book. Okay, they spent weeks and weeks doing that. And then she took what Wade and Maya did and she put it into print, printed form. So here we have all of this. I wanted to really acknowledge that right to everybody. What a, what a gift. You know, my sermons, if you look at them, they've got notes all over them and they're just because, you know, I'm, I'm changing things to the last minute. But I, I, I have no words to express the thanks for that. I thought I was going to get the Book of Ruth and there's no kidding. The FedEx guy came in today and he was worn out. And he wheeled him down on a thing, but picking him up out of the truck, and then he said, be careful, these are really heavy, and they're, I, they're this big. Imagine two, two uh, reams of paper or boxes of paper, and two of those. So it's like four things of paper plus another smaller box, and thank you. I, I, I can't say that enough, and with that, we'll go ahead and get started into prayer. Her name is Suzanne. Wade, Nolan, and Maya did the, uh, the formatting work, and then Suzanne... Uh, I don't want to give last names, but uh, uh, Wade Dolan I can because everybody, he, he posts his name everywhere, but the other ones I don't want to do that. But um, uh, anyway, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be in your word today and to share in your word. We thank you for the many blessings of this life. We pray for the people that we mentioned and any others from last Thursday and uh, last Sunday. And we also certainly pray, Lord, for the uh, uh, uh unsaved in our lives, the people that are not saved, that are um, uh, that we've been praying for each week and uh, in our hearts and in our families, we would pray for them. And then, Lord, we also certainly uh, ask that uh, this class would be conducted properly and that nothing would be uh, amiss in our teaching today. But if there is something wrong that I say, that that would be alerted to people so that they would not follow that uh, aberrant path. We pray these things that you'll be glorified, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I've I, I got to get rid of this. If you would take this and just move it away from me. That guy, I told him I have Bible class, and he's sending email after email, and it's pinging. And, I, okay, yeah, I can't concentrate with that going. So, um, yeah, do whatever you need to do, but thank you. I don't know how to do that other than just turning the thing off completely. Um, okay, we are now in the book of Galatians, and we're in uh, chapter 2, verse 5. So, here Okay. Okay. So, uh, fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I had preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Okay, little different to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So just a different terminology. My guess is that the Greek says our, I don't remember that, but um, all right, uh, two, five comments. And oh, one more thing I wanna ask the people online, if they mind 
the camera angle is different. I'm no longer sitting in a lower chair, I'm sitting in a higher chair. And the reason why it's the lower chair, I cannot move from that lower chair. If I move from that lower chair, the camera moves. And so it causes my back to hurt really badly. And um, But if, if it was a better view, then I put a pillow there and it's okay. But if it's a better view there, let me know. But if this view is okay, I can turn around and I can write right on the board without even getting up and we don't have to worry about the camera moving. This was Jim's idea. And if, if it's okay, you don't need to email. But if you think that the other view is better, um, let me know and we'll go back to that. But Just let you know, I, I went online with everyone watching and I said, what do you think of the new SIF Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So nobody noticed. Okay, good. All right. So it doesn't matter. Then obviously it's not. Uh, I am way higher than I was before. I'm way higher. But what happened before was that the camera used to shine down on me down here. And if I got up to right on the board, it would move up to here. And then if I sat back down, it would move up again. The problem with it, though, was that if I got up even one inch to move my, you know, uh, my readjust my back, if I got up, the camera would move to here. And so I couldn't move ever during a Bible class. And so it was, you know, everybody else can move around. You get uncomfortable and your back hurts, you move. Well, I couldn't do that. And so that's why, but if nobody noticed, then it doesn't matter. So, okay, um, here we go with comments 2.5. And I know we're 20 minutes into the class already. I apologize about that, but a couple things we had to talk about. Okay, to whom is speaking of the false brethren of the previous verse? It was to these miscreants that Paul says, we did not yield submission. They had come in and tried to pervert the gospel of grace. We've been talking about that now since chapter 1, which says that there is no thing that a man can do in order to be pleasing to God except exercise faith in what he has already done through Christ. That is the gospel. That is it, okay? They had tried to introduce a system of works for righteousness, but Paul and Barnabas refused to submit, as he says, even for an hour. I'm going to take you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 just for one second. It's not complicated. I could quote it to you, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read it right out of the Word, and then you're going to see exactly what the gospel is. This is the gospel, and we cannot add to that. Uh, not two Corinthians. i got to get back to 1 Corinthians. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, and then it says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first, let me go back and explain what it says. Moreover, brethren, from verse 1, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you, you also stand, by which you are saved. This is the gospel by which you are saved. Okay, um... If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he's saying, you know, if I'm wrong, then you believed in vain, but I'm not wrong. This is the gospel. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also deliver, received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. If you believe that, you are saved. That is it. There is nothing that you can add to it. And if you try to add to it, then you have a false gospel. Okay. Um, you know, I did the doctrine sermons. And one of the doctrine sermons, I highlighted a couple people that present a incorrect uh, gospel. One of them was Ray Comfort. One of them was um, John MacArthur. And when I did Ray Comfort, it probably upset people. That doesn't bother me. If he's saying it wrong, he's saying it wrong. Somebody sent me a video of his recently. And it was properly done. So I think that he probably has thought this through and he said nothing about repenting. Nothing. He did the same thing he always does. He's very good at approaching people and talking to them in a very respectful manner. But this person said, do you see anything wrong with that? And I said, absolutely not. It was a new video. He must have reevaluated his doctrine and he realized I, I'm teaching something that is incorrect. Repentance comes after salvation, not before. 
If you have to repent of your sins, that means you are working in order to please God in order to be saved. And as the, the simple example of this for you to understand is that when you're sick, you do what? You go to the doctor. You don't say, I'm going to cure myself so I can go see the doctor. We don't do that. He is the physician. He is the healer. And we go to the healer and then we repent or take our medicine, the things that need to do uh, in order to be right after getting the prescription. But the doctor gives the prescription. Okay, so that's the gospel. These people would come in and Paul and Barnabas refused to submit for even an hour. We could go to Ephesians 2 while we're at it. For by grace you were saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. If it's a gift, then you can't do something in order to earn it. If you do something in order to earn it, then it is no longer a gift. It is a wage and God owes you. And so that is what we need to make sure we understand is that there is nothing added to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Nothing. Now, Paul tells you how to appropriate that in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Okay. You know, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He tells you the process of appropriation of the gospel, but the gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Remember those two sets of verses and you will do well. And then remember all of the theology that Paul is giving to the Galatians is tied up in what he says there in those two sets of verses. Okay. So they didn't submit even for an hour. This term, even for an hour, is his way of saying that they simply did not budge. They rejected outright their false gospel, meaning the false gospel of those heretics, and refused to even listen to what they proposed. It was a dilution of the truth, and any dilution means it is not the truth. It has become a perversion of it. Their stubborn refusal was so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Okay, that's Paul's words. According to Charles Ellicott, the words used in the Greek are expressive of undiminished continuance. Might reach to you and persist among you in its full extent. Let me read that again. So that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. That's Paul's words. Ellicott says it might reach to you and persist among you in its full extent. Okay, so there you go. In other words, they were to see the truth, take it in, and continue to act on it forever. As this letter to the Galatians has become a part of the Bible, the words of Paul continue to speak to all nations and at all times. It is God's word which says that we are not to add in any demand as if a requirement to be pleasing to God. Nothing. This is why, and I bring them up again and again, the Hebrew Roots movement is absolute poison because they teach a false gospel saying that you need to adhere to the law of Moses, blah, 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 blah. And I'll talk about that in the sermons coming in the uh, weeks ahead because obviously we're in Deuteronomy. All right, when we get done with uh, this week's sermon, we're going to get right into the Ten Commandments, which is from Exodus 20. Well, they're repeated in Deuteronomy 5. Get ready because the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 have differences than the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. There's no contradiction. We'll talk about that. But pay attention to those sermons, even though there'll be a lot. I've got to tell you how nice it was. You know, you go through a sermon, then you go back to Exodus 20. And if this word, this verse is word for word, the same as the last one, there's not a lot of study you need to do. You just kind of cut and paste, and it made sermon typing much easier. It was no shorter because I did more uh, study on other areas where there were changes. So it was very complicated there. But 
uh, just be apprised that uh, the Ten Commandments are a very good review. The Lord obviously is infinitely wise, but he was very intelligent in putting them there twice with those changes. And why are those changes there? It's really interesting. Anyway, um, it is God's word which says that we are not add to in any demand as if a requirement to be pleasing to God. We are not to be intimidated into being circumcised. Paul is going to continue that. He's going to beat it to death. By the time we get to Galatians chapter 6, you will have heard that quite a few times, and he will be very precise in what he says. No circumcision, and that means after salvation. If you circumcise your child when he is, you know, a kid at Sarasota Memorial Hospital, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you're not doing it in order to please God. You're, you know, your idea is that you know it's healthy, you know, blah, blah, blah. There are reasons why you circumcise a child and they know that it's good for a child. Fine, go ahead and do it. If you don't circumcise them, you haven't lost anything. Zero, okay? But if uh, circumcised, observing a Sabbath day, once again, remember that the Sabbath day is what day of the week? Saturday. It's not a Sunday. So when people say we're going to observe our Sabbath and we're going to church today and it's Sunday, they're not. They've misunderstood what the term Sabbath means. It is the seventh day. God started creation on day one, which was Sunday. He created for six days, six-day creation, and then on the seventh day, he rested. Okay, that was a picture being developed in redemptive history, which is followed through with starting with Exodus chapter 16, where the uh, Sabbath was first introduced, and then it's repeated at least 10 or 12 times in different, very small ways throughout Exodus in numbers, okay, the Sabbath. And each time he introduces a precept from the Sabbath, it is there for a reason, and it was always there to picture working in Christ or working in Christ, but not to Christ or etc. In other words, there's nothing that says that the Sabbath is anything but fulfilled in Christ. When we are in Christ, we enter our Sabbath rest. And so that means that every day is a Sabbath for us. We are in our rest. Not literally, because that hasn't been... Uh, completed in us. We haven't been raptured and glorified yet, but we are living in our Sabbath rest now. That's why we don't have to observe a Sabbath, but there's more than that as well. Yes. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon always believed in the Sabbath for Christians. Yeah, that's right. And you'll you see it in his writings. Oh, yeah. That's right, because it's it's an error in theology. You know, I, I'm not one to get down too hard on, on Charles Spurgeon. He had great, great sermons, you know, flowery, and they were very uplifting. But, you know, he's got errors in his theology. R.C. Sproul had errors in his theology, and I know that Charlie Garrett does too. But I would not purposely teach my errors. There are things that I believe that if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I would not purposely ever teach an error. And I know Spurgeon wouldn't either, but he was incorrect in that. There is no Sabbath on a Sunday, and I know that he did his sermons on Sunday. So that's, that's just an incorrect theology. But uh, circumcision, Sabbath day, holding a feast of the Lord observance. Somebody emailed me about that this past week. I know he's watching, so hello. Um, uh, but he um, he asked about that. What do we do, you know, the Jews and the people that are observing a feast day? And I said, well, it depends on what they're doing. If they're observing the Passover in order to just see how the Passover was observed, and they're just participating in it, that's fine. Or if they're a Jew in Israel, and they're observing their heritage, which Messianic Jews do every year, Sergio, he attends a Passover seat or whatever, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you were doing it as because you were told that you need to do that in order to be observant uh, to the Lord, then you are teaching heresy because that's fulfilled. There's a difference between a cultural observance of something, which people can do, 
And there's another thing being told that you have to do this in order to be pleasing to the Lord. So it depends on the heart. The heart is where God is reading you. And that's why Paul diminishes those things, especially in, let's go there. Colossians chapter 2, really quickly, because he's talking about it right here, so it's pertinent. Colossians chapter 2, and then in verse, um, we'll start with verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So your past trespasses are forgiven, but then in 2 Corinthians 5.19, he says that he's not imputing you sins, so you're any sins you're committing now are not being counted against you as sins. So your past sins are done. Your current and future sins are all under the blood. Okay, so that's done. And then it says, having wiped out, here, this is the Ten Commandments, right here. That's the law, right here. He's talking about the law. Having wiped out the writing of requirements. The law of Moses is wiped out. What do you see there now? You see a blackboard. There's nothing there. Okay, and I've got... Um, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and which was contrary to us. We'll talk about that in Sunday sermon. It is against us. The law of Moses was against us, and there's a reason why. God gave a reason for giving them the, the uh, law of Moses, and then he gives them a reason why they need to come out of the law of Moses. But it's just black and white. Actually, this one is highlighted in yellow, So, it's, but you get my point. Yes. Black and white was contrary to us, and he has taken out of the way Law of Moses, having nailed it to the cross. So it's done, okay? Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. The power of the devil is through the law. The law causes the imputation of sin. If there's no law, you cannot be imputed sin. If God never said to Adam and Eve, if he never said you can eat of any fruit except this tree and they ate of that tree, then he could not impute them sin. As soon as he gave them the law, they died. And that is exactly what happens with the Ten Commandments. When the Ten Commandments were given, they died. When all of the other laws of the law of Moses were given and they didn't uh, meet those requirements, they died. That is what he's saying. Once again, don't get scared if you're listening for the first time. The Ten Commandments still apply, nine of them, because they are repeated in the New Testament. That's right. They're, they're, well, he says the word commands, but they're non-imputable offenses. If you break one of those, you will not be imputed to sin, but you will be judged for rewards and losses. Okay, so there you go. And here it is. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. So here he is, verse 16, what we're talking about back in Galatians. So let no one judge you in food or drink. That's the dietary laws of the law of Moses. Or regarding a festival. That's the feast of the Lord. Okay, or a new moon or Sabbath. Those were things that they did in the Old Testament. The Sabbaths included. The Sabbath means the Sabbath days. There's 52 Sabbaths a year, and so he's speaking of all 52 Sabbaths in the year. He's not talking about anything but that, and there are other Sabbaths. There are, I think, six times that the word Sabbath is used that is applied in a special way. I may be wrong on the number, but one of them is the Day of Atonement. The word is Shabbat Shabbaton. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest. So it's considered a special Sabbath, the Day of Atonement, okay? And that was what we would call one of the Sabbaths. All of those, all of those are done. So let no one judge you in those things, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. 
Paul says, don't let people judge you by that. That's what he's talking about in the book of Galatians. Do not let people tell you what to do in the new covenant. You are not under law. You are under grace. So all of those things have been annulled. They're annulled. They are obsolete. They are taken away. And we are now in the new covenant. We do not observe Sabbaths. We do not need to be circumcised. We do not need to observe the feasts of the Lord or the other things, the new moons and the other things that he talked about. Okay? That is out. And it's there in black and white. That's the thing that's important to understand is that God's word doesn't change. It's the same word that was delivered at the very beginning. It does not change. It's there in black and white. And if it says that they are done, then they are done. We cannot reinsert those things without causing damage to what God has given us. And it's, in this case, heretical damage because it's changing the gospel. And we cannot change the gospel. Okay, so we're in Galatians 2, verse 5. Um, I'm reading the comments. Let's see here. Um, okay, Sabbath day, holding a feast of the Lord, observance, which is the feast, which I just read you, or the festivals, as Paul calls it, or giving up on eating some non-kosher food. That was addressed by Paul there as well. He said uh, food and drink. He was describing the dietary laws of Israel. We are not to be judged by those things. Do not let anybody judge you in what you eat. If you don't want to eat ham because you don't like the taste of ham, good, don't eat ham, all right? I love to eat durian. A lot of people here don't like durian. I think probably everybody in the place doesn't. Maybe Ron would eat it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I like durian, so I'm going to eat it. If you don't want to eat durian, don't eat it. I got somebody shaking her head because she's been around durian much of her life and she still doesn't eat it. But um, having said that, the same thing is true with ham. If you like ham, eat ham. There's nothing in the Bible that tells you you cannot eat ham, all right? That's the way it is. Paul says, you are not to be judged by what you eat, okay? So, we may do any of these things in our freedom, but if we do them in an attempt to be pleasing to God, then we have fallen from grace. Paul will say that explicitly coming up in a, a verse soon near you. We are under no such restrictions, and to proclaim otherwise is to be considered heresy and worthy of condemnation. That's what he said right there. I'll take you back so you don't think I'm making that up. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, this is 1-8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. It's worthy of condemnation, according to Paul. And then he doesn't just say it once, he says it twice. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That includes Paul himself, that includes an angel from heaven, or any Judaizer or Hebrew roots movement that shows up at your church and says, you need to be observing the feast of the Lord. If you see that on, you know, if you watch Christian TV and you see that, turn that off and never watch it again. It's heresy. Stay away from that, okay? Um, life application. Again and again, Paul shows his adamancy concerning the purity of the gospel of grace. And when I say again and again, he does it in every book he writes almost. And he gives even a concrete example of it in the book of Philemon. Philemon? He doesn't even talk about anything there. I mean, it's just getting a, a guy uh, released. Well, why Philemon? Let's go there. This is the gospel of grace. I'll take that really quickly and... Uh, uh, it's it's a macro theme. It's not a micro theme. And so I didn't really talk about it in my commentary on Philemon. But here it is. He says, um, I appeal to you for Onesimus, whom I have begotten in chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. 
I am sending him back, you therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Okay, before I go on, who is the heart of Jesus Christ? The people of the world, right? He's sending Philemon back, who's my very heart. Okay, but without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave. We're slaves of sin, right? No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Then if you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. He's taking the place of Christ in there. He doesn't need to say Jesus died for your sins because he's giving the example. This guy already knows the Lord. He already knows what Christ did for him, and Paul is the one that instructed him in that. Paul is taking the place of Christ and saying, if he owes you anything, put it on my account. That's Christ hanging on the cross for you and me. That's the simple gospel of grace right there in the book of Philemon that never mentions the gospel outwardly at all. It's just a book about Paul wanting to get the guy free. But he's using a concrete example of what he has already taught Philemon, or I'm sorry, Onesimus. Yeah, Philemon about Onesimus so that he understands that you went through this process. And now I am showing you an example of it to remind you of the process you went through. It's something that we're all beholden to. We have a debt against us and we can't forgive it. Paul says otherwise, because he puts himself in the place of Christ, which is what we are all to do every day of our life when we have an offense that somebody asks for repentance from. Okay, I'm sorry I did that. Please forgive me. How many times should you forgive him? Not seven times, I tell you, but 70 times seven, right? You're to forgive and to forgive and forgive because that's what Christ did for us. How many people have not sinned since they came to Christ? I better put my hand down. Anybody here? Anybody out there? Nobody. He continues to forgive us again and again because his son died for our sins. And that's what Paul is saying, and that's what we're to do as well. So this is, this is the importance of what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians, is that the gospel demands these things, and adding into the gospel means that God owes you. And God doesn't owe us anything. It was a voluntary act. We received it. There's nothing we did to earn it, and God doesn't owe us anything. But he gracefully gives it to us when we ask for it. Okay, so, um, holding to the Lord or observance of giving up on feats. Okay, yeah, so we're in verse 2-6 now. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external, external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. Okay, a little different, not much, but, um, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So a little different, but same idea. I mean, there was no, there was no difference in the, uh, the uh, transmission of the message. It was just differently worded. To whom, Paul's words, is speaking of the false brethren of the previous verse. It was to these miscreants, I'm reading 2.5 again, I'm sorry, 2.6. Paul's words in this verse appear to be a little harsher than they are in the original Greek. It seems as if he is unnecessarily dismissive of the apostles. 
but he is simply being logical about his calling and their relation to it. Let me read it again here. Um, but from those who seem to be something, talking about the apostles, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Okay, he sounds dismissive of them. He's not in the Greek. You know, the English is kind of hard to translate in that. We've got one, I think it's one that I typed and I have not yet submitted from Jude. I think it's coming up in uh, eight or nine days. And if so, it's got a play on the same word four times in one verse. Yes, it is. I, I think I typed it yesterday. Anyway, um, uh, it, it, sometimes you don't get things out of the, it's the word ungodly. He says four times the word ungodly. He uses an adjective form, and then he uses it um, twice in the verb form, I think, and then, or maybe adjective, uh, yeah, noun, verb, and then adjective. And you don't get that when you read the English, and it, it, it seems awkward. But when you hear it in the Greek, it's much more expressive, okay? Same thing here. He's not diminishing the uh, other apostles when he says these things. So just understand that. It seems as if, if he is unnecessarily dismissive of the apostles, but he is simply being logical about his calling in relation to it. He is now tying his words back to verse 2 after his parenthetical thought concerning Titus, which comprised verses 3 through 5. He begins with, but from those who seem to be something. This is speaking of those who were of reputation. Paul's words again in verse 2. However, the verb should be present tense, those who are of reputation, because they're still there. They are of reputation, they're down there, and he's speaking of them in that way. They had, they not only had authority in the past at the council in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, they continued to have authority at the present, even over those in Galatia, okay? There is a hierarchy within the church at this time, and those people had the authority, and they were making the decisions while the church was being established. Now, we don't need a hierarchy within the church anymore. The idea of the Catholic church being the uh, apostolic succession, and there being the uh, grand pupa of all the churches in the world, is untrue. Why is it untrue? Can anybody tell me why the... Uh, form of the church that was given in Acts chapter 15, in which he obviously continues to hold to here, why is that no longer effective or valid? I'll give you one hint. Can anybody tell me why it's no longer valid? Anybody? God shows personal favoritism to no man. Well, no, that, that, that's an explanation of what he's saying, but the reason is because we have the word of God. That's why. The Bible is sealed now. The Bible was still being written at this time. It was the apostolic age. It's correct what you said. It, 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 he's saying that. He doesn't show favoritism to anybody. But the reason why we don't have that structure of the early church is because this is our structure. Christ gave the word through those people, and now we have this as our ultimate authority, not a body of people. Okay? Everybody got that? Always remember that. This is our authority. And that's why it is so damaging. And I say this in Prophecy Updates sometimes, and I don't have one here, but if you have a book of discipline, like the Methodist Church, or you've got the Council of whatever, um, uh, the Edicts of whatever in the Episcopal Church, and all these little things that they write, the problem with that is, is they start out well-intentioned. I don't care what denomination it is. They usually start out well-intentioned. I'm sure the SBC has got this as well. They've got something that sets the parameters for the church. And it's usually starting based on the Bible, right? But the Bible's a big book and it's complicated. So we're going to make it into an easy set of laws so that we understand the structure of what we're doing in this particular denomination. Everybody see that? Everybody agree with it? That's what they do. What is the problem with that? They change it. That's right. They can amend it. 
God's word cannot be amended. But once you have a book of discipline and people say, well, we need to you know, be more inclusive with this particular perverse agenda, all they do is they just change the writing and they publish a new book. And all of a sudden, what was once started within the context of the Bible has now departed completely from the Bible. Because every new person that comes in has got a little more yeast to add into this bread until it's so puffed up that there's no Bible at all. As Jim said, we were talking about the Catholic Church before. And uh, in particular, the new, uh, what's his name, Mel Gibson movie. He did The Passion of the Christ and today a um, uh, teaser for The Resurrection is coming out. And it was real exciting. Ooh, the, the you know, it's, it's going to be good. Mel Gibson does a good production. And Jim said, you know, he's when he does a movie, he's got this really good theology. I know there's little things in there like him stamping on the snake and uh, people say, well, that's not in the Bible. Okay, that's creative license. It's a movie, okay? But putting that aside, he's got, you know, this good set theology. Christ died on the cross. Christ died for the sins of the people of the world and all this. And Yes, it's true. The Catholics have good theology on the Trinity, the uh, all-sufficient atonement of Christ, the deity of Christ, etc. But what the problem is, is they start adding in other things. And pretty soon, you've got all this fluff around it and you don't see the core doctrines. So young Catholic minds get this really good doctrine right off the bat. Oh, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus is the Savior and all this. And the rest of their life, yeah, the Trinity. They know all this. You talk to a Catholic, do you know what the Trinity is? They will always say yes. You ask some people that are in Baptist churches and they don't know that. I don't know. I mean, but a Catholic will. The difference is that the Catholic has all of this other stuff added on. And it never got from here to here. And that's the problem. Whereas in a Baptist church, they may not know what the Trinity is, but the first thing they're told when they come in is, you're a Savior and you need Jesus. And oh my God, and it goes to the heart and they're saved. So uh, be careful not to diminish the theology of somebody just because you disagree with them. John Calvin has all kinds of crummy theology, but he has some really good writings. Okay, same thing with Charles Spurgeon. He had some ideas. He liked uh, uh, some of the, um, uh, what do you call it, Calvinist doctrines, and yet he had good writings. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, okay? But at the same time, do not add in books of discipline. Do not add in any of those type of things because this is the word of God. This is where we get our doctrine and we do not have a church structure anymore because we have the word of God. One more thing I will say before we continue on with the comments is that, that uh, you need to be careful because this is something that happens a lot and you may even do it and you may not know that you do it. So this is important for you as an individual to evaluate. You have read, we'll say, Timothy Le Tim LaHaye's The Left Behind series. Has anybody here read those? I, several hands are up. I have never read them. Okay, but I have had people actually quote the Left Behind books to me. And they say, well, this is going to happen. Because they have now mixed in something that he just wrote it from a book that has nothing to do with reality. And they're quoting it because they have made, you know, a cross connection in their mind. They think that what Timothy or Tim LaHaye is saying, I keep wanting to say Timothy Leary, you know, yeah. the, uh, uh, Tim LaHaye, uh, uh, you know, they, they think what he is writing is based on the Bible. And it's not, it's just a book. It's not based on the Bible. And so you want to be careful to not quote something unless you know it's in the Bible. That's not to diminish anybody. It's just that we get things crammed into our head that don't belong there. So be careful to keep your biblical theology biblical. And don't cite Tim LaHaye when it comes to things like 
uh, you know, I could give you some examples, but then I would get people mad at me, and I'm not going to do that. I mean, they're, they're blatant. They're not in Scripture anywhere, and yet he puts them in there, and people cite them all the time. I get emails quoting these particular doctrines to me constantly, and I have to say, what? He's got it right now. Oh, yeah, he's got it right now because he's up with the Lord. But anyway, he wasn't writing doctrine. He was just simply writing a novel. He was getting people inspired to get ready for the rapture. So, But I've never read him. I don't care. I just know that when somebody, we had somebody in the projects do that to us. And she said, I never thought of that. And she has been very, very careful. I'll tell you who uh, when we're not here. I don't want to say names on the, uh, but this person has been very careful since then to separate what she reads, because this lady reads a lot. She's the most avid reader I personally know. And yet, you know, she, she just, she's happy living in the project. She's content with that. But she, she said, I'm going to make a distinction between the Bible and left behind after that. She just had never been told that before. And so she thought, well, it must be true because he wrote it. So be careful with that type of thing. And now we'll continue on with this. Um, uh, they, uh, didn't have the have the authority in the past at the council in Jerusalem. They had continued authority at the present, even though over those in Galatia, which we no longer need because we have the Bible. Okay, Paul continues though. Despite this authority, Paul says, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. This is not intended as a statement of diminishing their authority. Rather, it is a statement concerning the source of his he doesn't care about any earthly authority if the source is, you know, instilled in him. That's all he needs. He doesn't need to worry about what other people are saying or thinking. He's not diminishing them, but he is elevating rightly where his doctrine came from. It came from Christ, okay? So they had nothing to do with where Paul received his commission. We went through that when we started the book of Galatians, and that's what Paul was doing. I didn't receive this from men. I didn't receive it from there. I didn't, I, and then he went. I went down there, and I received it directly from the Lord, okay? So he went through that already, and now he's reminding them that, okay? They had nothing to do with his commission. Nobody did. The most, uh, the, the closest thing that anybody had to do with Paul's conversion, which wasn't anything to do with Paul's conversion, it was tied to it, but it had nothing to do with it, was when the Lord said to Ananias, go down and place your hands on a person because he is waiting for you and he's been given it. And he said, you know, Lord, what are you doing? And he says, go and do it. And so Ananias came and he said, I've come to put my hands on you and so that you may receive the Holy Spirit. And then it says he baptized him. Okay, that's as close as anybody had anything to do with Paul's doctrine. Other than that, nobody had anything to do with his doctrine. He received it by revelation from the Lord and by his own knowledge of the scriptures that he was immersed in since he was young and that he sat under Gamaliel. He had all of that wealth of knowledge that nobody else had and that was needed in order to understand what is going on in the Gentile world. How does that point to what I know? But nobody else could have done that that was selected as an apostle because they were all fishermen. They were, you know, tax collectors, etc. They were selected for particular reasons. Paul was selected for a particular reason as well. That's why he extends beyond the Jews into the area of the Gentiles, okay? It's because he had that knowledge. And that, once again, that is why I get so excited on Monday mornings, is because I'm going to sit down on Monday morning, and I'm going to be in the Old Testament. I'm going to be in the Law of Moses, and I'm going to see how that fits in with the coming of Christ. And that, to me, is the most exciting thing, because imagine Paul. He knew all of this in the Hebrew. His heart must have been pumping every time he read, say, Deuteronomy 17.3, whatever that says. I don't know. 
but he probably said, he's right there, you know? It, it, it must have been astonishing to him to see that. It just must have been. It, and that's what I get a little bit of every week. You know, it's just a little taste, and I try to present it to you in a way that you will get excited and say, I don't mind being in the Old Testament, because it, it seems like it's tedious, it seems like it's hard to read, and then you see the richness of it, and you say, oh my goodness, it's, it's all pointing to Jesus. And then, and then I read the Bible like six or seven times before we read like, We would get to some parts of the Old Testament, like, like okay, let's just... Place through it's this. Just like move real fast, and like it's like you know because and Deuteronomy was one of them. Oh like, yeah. It's just like okay, go, 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 go. And then, but like you know, it's it's when you slow down and you uh, have somebody who's dug up what's there. It's the most interesting. Oh, I, it, I can't. I if I when I go through the Bible again, I will definitely linger on the, the books that I use. I used, used to, to just like, blow run through. away from. Yeah. Because it's so beautiful. But like you said, it's hard. To, uh, right now, I'm reading the book of Exodus in the mornings, okay? I'm reading the Psalms at night, but I'm in the book of Exodus, and I'm reading it, and, uh, you know, I said to myself, I'm, I'm glad that I've done sermons on these, because otherwise, I would be completely lost. I'd be like, I want to get through this right now. But I kind of remember, oh, I remember that, and I remember that. I will say something right now. This will be in an addition to a sermon sometime, Okay. This will be, Sergio and I have been talking about how to approach this because there are certain revelations that come up later. This is, this is out of Galatians for a minute, but you're going to enjoy this. I know you are. Sergio is reading the, uh, he read my commentary on Bezalel, okay, who's the guy that, and Aholiab, who constructed the tabernacle, right? Yeah, okay. Well, I gave the analysis of, and his name means, okay, Bezalel, okay, Be is in, Sel is shadow, and then El is God, in the shadow of God. But there's another word, Selem, which we brought up in a couple of sermons recently, which is, it's, it's a derivative of Sel. Sel and Selem, they're the same thing. Shadow, but what is a shadow like? The word Selem is image. And guess what it says? Let me take you back here to Exodus. Now, you're going to get this, and someday you'll hear this again. You'll say, oh, I already know that. But it's interesting. And Sergio was, he, he said, this is great. And then I started telling him what that actually means. And he was coming back on, this is messaging, early in the morning, 4 o'clock. It's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. He's just getting up there, and I'm just getting up at 3.45 in the morning. So we're both getting up, and he's excited about what he read. And he tells me, here's what it says. It's in, Ex I'm sorry, Genesis 2. And it says, um, uh, wait a minute, um, Genesis, we're in Genesis. And he says, um, uh, let me find this. Um, uh, maybe it's, it's Genesis 1. Hang on, let me find the verse. I want to make sure I get you the right verse. And it says, yeah, um, verse 26, 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Selem. And the Hebrew is Betzalem. Betzalel, Betzalem. Okay, in other words, it's a play on words. What did Bezalel and Aholiab make? And what does every detail of the tabernacle point to? Bezalel is being used as a picture of God creating the second Adam, the second man, and everything about it is. Do you see it now? Does everybody understand the picture? Bezalel, he is creating man in his image, and then he is building the second man throughout 
the picture so that when Christ comes, all of that genealogy, there's no mistake in the genealogy. God prepared a body, it says in Hebrews. He prepared a body. What does that mean? He took and made Adam in the womb of uh, uh, Mary the way that, uh, what's his name, Jacob Resch says? Absolutely not. He prepared the body through six, 4,000 years of human history. Every person, every gene that was entered into that genealogy, the daughters of Lot, both of them had children, and both of those children are in the genealogy of Jesus. As a matter of fact, every single person that is listed in Abraham's family, in X, I think it's uh, Genesis 12, where it says Abraham, his father, his uh, Lot, his brother, his wife, Sarah, gives all of these names. Every single one of them is in that genealogy because Lot goes and he has two children. So that means that Lot and his wife are in Jesus' genealogy because both of the children are in the genealogy because both of their children after them are listed in gene uh, Christ's genealogy. He prepared a body. And that is what Betzalel is picturing. And I missed that. I mean, I got it right with the analysis. He's in the shadow of God, and it explains it. And you go back and watch the sermon, and you'll see it. It's correct analysis, but there's more. Betzalem in the image of God. Oh, isn't that a marvelous revelation? It's just, it's worth the whole Bible study. Let's go. Um, okay. Um, if, oh, talking about that, we're going to close a little bit early today. Not too much, but I'm going to stop early because I have to go pick something up. And so uh, uh, here we go. We're going to go on. Um, whether they approved of his message or not, the metal, um, we'll go back. They had nothing to do with Paul, where Paul received his commission. Instead, it came apart from them and directly from Christ. The words, it makes no difference to me, Paul's words, are intended to show this, whether they approved of his message or not. The matter had been settled by the same one, Jesus, who had commissioned them. So he's on an equal standing with them. It doesn't matter what they say. He already knows. And so I'm giving you the gospel, and this is the gospel which you must stand by. Okay? This is supported by his next thought, where he says, God shows personal favoritism to no man. This is a Hebraism. That means it's a Hebrew, like an idiom from Hebrew. Uh, the words personal favoritism literally means to accept the face. Oh, we'll talk about, the, oh, that's funny. We're going to talk about that in this particular uh, sermon on Sunday, about the face, accepting the face, not accepting the face. It's not going to be exactly that idiom, but you'll, you'll see the face being mentioned in two different contexts in this coming Sunday sermon. And when you do, there's a reason why it says what it says. It says at one time to Moses in Exodus. It says at one time to Moses says it to the people here in uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And there's a small little difference, a teeny little difference that is not translated in the English, or it, some do, but they're usually translated wrong is what I'm saying. But it makes all the difference in the world. Okay, And so to accept the face. In the Old Testament, it could be taken in a positive way or in a negative way. In the New Testament, it is only used in a negative way. The other such use is in Luke 20, verse 21. Let me take you there and we'll see what he says there. Luke 20, verse 21, it says, um, Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism. You do not uh, accept the face, but teach the way of God in truth. What that means, you do not accept the face. This guy may be convincing, he may be handsome, he may be eloquent, he may be a great orator, he may have all the knowledge in the world. We'll go with Tom this time. He, yeah. He's sitting back there looking really handsome. Uh, yeah, so, um, it, but 
you don't accept the face. It doesn't matter if he sounds true or not. If he's incorrect, you don't accept the face. And that's what they were saying about Jesus. We know that you would never accept the face, but rather you speak the word of God in truth or whatever it just said. I might be paraphrasing that, okay? That is the, the idea there, accepting the face, okay? Um, and you'll, yes, uh, what it means is that God does not look at a person and accept him based on externals. He is completely impartial in how he judges a person. God does not in any way, shape, or form look at the man. He looks at the heart. That's found when uh, uh, Samuel, speaking, you know, uh, he first about um, uh, Saul, and then he said it later about David. Saul was selected for a particular purpose. It was to give us some redemptive hints uh, of what's going to happen later in history. And then David comes along. And what happens is he starts with the oldest son. He goes to the second son. He goes to the third son. And then he stops naming them after that. It just says, well, he rejected all of them. He says, don't you have any more sons? And he says, but the first one, he says, surely this is the king, you know. And the Lord says, no, I, you know, I don't accept basically this idea. I don't accept the face. I look at the man from the inward parts. I know I'm paraphrasing that. And it's When you go there, it's going to say, it, it's going to say the same thing, but just much differently. He looks at the heart. Yeah, he looks at the heart. That's right. Thank you. And uh, so anyway, but you know, he's letting them know that I have a reason why I'm selecting this particular person. And who was it? Was it the third, the fourth? Was it the fifth? Was it the sixth or was it the seventh? No, it was the eighth. Okay, but later you're going to see David is listed as the seventh son. Sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Why would God select David, who's the eighth in the listing there in 1 Samuel chapter 17? Why would he select him and anoint him king? Anybody know? this? It, it all comes back to words. The number eight, you won't know this, I'm just asking you. The, the, the number eight in Hebrew is Shmone. Shmone. No, it's not in the beginning. Shmone. Okay, it's tied to the word Shemen. Does anybody know what Shemen is? Shemen is the word for oil. And then you take the Shemen and you pour the Shemen on number Shmone. They're tied together. In other words, it's a picture of Christ, the coming Messiah. Okay, he is the greater, he is the David who is going to picture the greater David. Everything has a reason in the Bible. Everything. Okay, and you wouldn't know that. That's why later it'll talk about the number seven. David is the seventh son, and you think, well, there's a contradiction. No, it's explainable, but you have to dig as to why. But he was using the number eight and the number oil in the same sentence for a very particular reason. Okay, you go through 1 Samuel chapter 17, and you're going to see all kinds of things like that. All kinds of them. All right, so here we go. Um, in this case, God had selected Paul for his own sovereign reasons, and that was the end of the matter. Because of this, he says, for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. There was nothing the other apostles could add to Paul's actual authority with their approval, and there was nothing they could diminish from it with their disapproval. God had ordained him. God had selected him. God had given him the Holy Spirit. God had trained him in the things that he needed training. They had no part in what he did other than to say, yeah, we accept what he says is correct. Okay, and that's why Peter later in one of his epistles says that, you know, Paul, and then he equates Paul's writings with the rest of scripture. It's because Paul is authoritative. 
all right? Instead, Paul, he stood approved by God through his selection as an apostle. Deal done. They don't need, he doesn't need their approval, and they don't need his. They all stood on an equal footing as apostles of Jesus Christ. Okay, life application. God does not look at externals when judging us. So why should we? How often we get caught up in following a teacher or a preacher because he's famous, handsome like Charlie Garrett, eloquent, a great orator, or on TV, or for whatever reason, we get starstruck. And all of us, I was kidding about the handsome part, everybody. I'm glad one person laughed. Anyway, instead, we should evaluate doctrine based on how the presenter's words match with scripture. That should be the only basis for why we follow a particular teacher, okay? And when he's wrong, you make your error correction in your notes and say, I know that Charlie Garrett was wrong in this particular place and, you know, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want you to keep coming here because I'm going to give you the best doctrine I can. If I make an error, I apologize in advance. There are certain things I know I'm not in error over. Predestination, for example. I know that Calvin is wrong. I know that the model that I teach is correct. That's just the way it is. We have free will. Okay, I know that that's true. There are certain things that are just obvious on the surface that had to be trained out of people, okay? But there are certainly things that I teach that are incorrect, and I apologize for doing that. It's not intentional, okay? We should evaluate doctrine based on the presenter's words and how they match with Scripture. Let us keep this valuable lesson near to us and always test what we hear based on the Word of God alone. That is, that is the test. Nothing else, okay? And, well, I won't get into that now, because it just take too long. Go ahead, verse 2-7. Seven. Seven. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. Okay, I, I, this is a little different, and there's a reason. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, instead of Gentiles, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter. So he's, that says Gentile and Jew, which is a paraphrase, and that's fine. It means exactly the same thing. But he is saying circumcised and uncircumcised. That's the big difference there, and it's just... The footnotes agree. Oh yeah, the footnotes agree, and that's what they, the Greek certainly says. I, I haven't looked at it you know, in years, but I am certain that it says circumcised and uncircumcised, or uncircumcision. But um, it's just fine to say Jew and Gentile for somebody that doesn't understand. Some people need an easier Bible to read. They want something that's in modern English, not something that's 150 years old or, heaven forbid, 400 years old by now, because the English is just not even translatable in some instances. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not something that we should get bent out of shape over when it says Jew and Gentile or uncircumcision and circumcision. Okay, verse 2-7, the words, but on the contrary are given to contrast to his previous words of verse 6, which I just read. It said there, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me, but on the contrary, okay? There was nothing deficient in Paul's gospel message, nor was there anything unsound or inappropriate. Instead, just as he noted, those in Jerusalem added nothing to me. His message was complete, sound, and in line with the truth of Jesus Christ. His commission was valid, and there was no need to add anything to it for it to be complete. And because of this, he says, they, meaning the leaders in Jerusalem, saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised has been committed to me. They saw that. They recognized that fact. 
So you can see now, reading this verse, that he was not diminishing them in the previous verse. But the English makes it sound like he was. Okay, they, they, they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised has been committed to me. The light of what Christ was doing through Paul truly dawned on them at this time. It was already known that the Gentiles could be a part of the church. Where is that recorded? Somebody? Well, no. Already known previously. Not Ephesians. I'm talking about the, the apostles, the, the, the hierarchy in the church. They already... 15 chapter, but before that. Go back to chapter... It begins with 1 and ends with 1. Chapter 11, okay, and... He said, Cornelius. Cornelius. Remember, they already. Yeah. Well, 10, but it's repeated in 11. <laughs> so, yes, he was explaining it to them in 11. 10, it happened, and then he went back to the church, but you're right, okay? It happened in 10, but in 11, he went back and they said, You went in eight with un, uh, you know, uh, unclean people or you whatever, and then he explained it. And so they realized Gentiles could be accepted at that time. But you are correct, okay? It happened in Acts chapter 10. And then it's re-explained, not word for word, but very closely in Acts chapter 11. So that's what I'm thinking of. And then the Acts chapter 15 simply solidified that. But by that time, they already had a church up in where um, Antioch, and that's where people were meeting, and that's when they all came down for this big thing in Acts chapter 15. But um, let's see, or even more than this, oh yeah, this was seen in the account of Cornelius's conversion in Acts 10 and 11. And even more than this, it came through Peter's evangelism rather than Paul's. So they knew that it had to be correct because Peter was the one that went down and talked to Cornelius. Paul wasn't even in the picture at the time. All right, he was. Uh, what is it? Acts chapter 9 was his conversion. But uh, 8 and 9, eight, it talks about him. 9, he had his conversion. But he was not the one who did the evangelism down in Caesarea Maritime. What? Antioch, I know I'll pick it here. You always go up to Jerusalem. Did I say down? Yes, you did. Okay, well, I, yeah, it's it's going down to Antioch from Jerusalem. But I was thinking of Sarasota, Florida. So I know, you look at the map and it's yeah, up there. No, I know, no. You're right, though. If I said Jerusalem, then it is down to Antioch. That is correct. I, I don't know where I was referring from, so I may have been thinking of Sarasota. down from Antioch to Jerusalem for the council. You know, well, then that's, they, they came down. Yes, you're right. Okay, <laughs> if I said Antioch and Jerusalem in the same sentence, then they need to uh, know that I was wrong because you were going up to Jerusalem. And I talked about that just, when was it? I think in the Prophecy Update Sunday. Yes, you did. Yeah, okay, so there you go. So uh, I knew you knew. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do know. It's just if I said it, it's like me saying Peter and when I mean Paul, I always get things backward in my head. That's my mental dyslexia. Anyway, okay, so um, uh, Peter's evangelism rather than Paul's. And then um, there could be no disputing that what Paul was doing was both correct and in line with the purposes of God. Because of this occurrence between Peter and Cornelius, we know that's true. And yet, the focus of the evangelism of the uncircumcision belonged not to Peter, but to Paul. Peter was the one to introduce it. There's a reason why. We'll go back into the book of Acts and you'll see all of this beautifully laid out. But for right now, it is Peter who introduced it, but Paul is the one that got the ministry committed to him. He was uniquely qualified to carry out this ministry and it had been committed to him. The fact that Paul is specifically noted as the apostle to the Gentiles is recorded both implicitly and explicitly in Romans 11.13. 1 Timothy 2, verse 7, 
and 2 Timothy 1, verse 11. I'll read it again in case you want to write that down. Romans 11, 13, 1 Timothy 2, 7, and 2 Timothy 1, 11. That is explicit. These, along with this note in Galatians 2, verse 7, are sufficient evidence of the specificity of Paul's ministry. It is not a different gospel. It is a focus of the gospel. Okay, it is to the uncircumcision. Continuing on, he next notes, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. Same gospel, the gospel to the circumcised, okay, was to Peter. What this means is that Peter was not only an apostle to the circumcised, meaning the Jews, but he is the main apostle to the Jews. The singling out of Peter in this way is used to show this, and it is well attested to in the structure and layout of the book of Acts. Acts 1 through 12, we talked about this last week, highlight Peter and his ministry to an exceptional degree. However, chapters 13 through 28 highlight Paul and his ministry in the same way. Everything that Peter accomplishes in his section of Acts is repeated in a marvelous way by Paul in his section. Everything. Having said this, it does not mean that Peter's ministry was solely one of evangelizing Jews as was noted concerning Cornelius above. Nor was Paul's ministry solely one of evangelizing Gentiles. There was also not a different gospel transmitted by Peter than that of Paul. That is the heresy, the doctrinal heresy known as hyperdispensationalism. That is correct. That is a heresy if somebody teaches that. There's two gospels, one to Peter, I, I'm sorry, one to the Jews and one to the Gentiles, you are, by Charlie Garrett, instructed to turn them off and never watch them again, ever. That is not a, you know, a doctrinal error, okay? That is a heresy. Once again, a heresy will keep the next person from being saved. If somebody is teaching heresy, don't ever watch that person again. I don't care how good of a teacher they are, how handsome they are, how much, you know, popcorn they give you during the uh, Bible study. Do not listen to them again. Heresy is different than bad doctrine. Bad doctrine can be overcome. You know, it's just bad doctrine. It will not keep anybody from being saved. Hyperdispensationalism is heresy. Okay. Um, oh, you're scratching your eye. I thought you had your hand up. Well, there was... Paul did go when he went into town. Right. He always went to, always the, went to the Jews first. first. Yeah. That's right. Always. He went to the synagogue. Well, that's, that's Romans 116. Yeah. And he, all through, yeah. And all through the Acts as well. You see, he remembers these verses. I never do. Burke's got this mind. Okay, um, there was not a different gospel transmitted by Peter than that of Paul. Rather, there is, as the Bible scholar Lightfoot notes, a distinction of sphere, not a difference of type. That's where the heretics, the hyperdispensationalists, come in. This is absolutely certain by Paul's comments in Galatians as well as Peter's comments in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, which I referenced a few minutes ago, but now we're going to go there really quickly. And they did the other yeah, that's exactly right. Hang on, Hebrews, whoops, let me go this way. It's such a small book, it takes forever to find it. Okay, John, Peter, and then we've got uh, 2 Peter, and then we've got 3, 15, and 16, 14. Well, yeah, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, same things, same gospel, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist mm -hmm. to their own destruction, hyperdispensationalists, as they do also the rest of scriptures. Okay, you have to be careful when you're listening to heretics because that will get into your mind and it will infect you. 
Okay, my first couple months after really coming to the Lord, I went to the Jehovah's Witnesses. All right, I didn't know anything. I went there and I, I can tell you, I know exactly what they think to this day. And I was only there a couple months. It's stuck in there. All right, but I also read the Bible 10 hours a day and I realized so quickly, these guys are a bunch of heretics when I had no idea at the beginning. I mean, I just thought they were a church. You know, yeah, we believe in Jesus and this and that. Well, it's a completely different Jesus. But, you know, you, you go to a church and you, it's not even a church, it's called a kingdom hall, but whatever. Anyway, okay, because of the sphere of influence, which the Bible marks out between Peter and Paul, it cannot go without notice or mentioning that the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine of Peter being the first pope is simply nuts. The Bible clearly shows that Peter was the apostle to the Jews, he wasn't to the Gentiles, so he couldn't have been the first pope. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. If anybody was the first pope, which there wasn't, but if he was, it would have been uh, Paul, not Peter. Okay, I almost said Peter, not Paul. As Peter's message to the Jews, then it would make as much sense as a baseball hoop for the Roman Catholic Church to claim its roots in the message of Peter. It would make no sense at all because there's no such thing as a baseball hoop. There are many logical arguments for denying their claim concerning Peter, this being just one of them, but it is a convincing one. The structure of the book of Acts, the layout of the epistles in the New Testament, and the dispensational model of redemptive history all show the truth that Peter's message was intended for the early church, following a time when Paul's letters would be church doctrine. And then Peter's letters would again take on added significance after the rapture of the church. Life application, and we'll be done with this one. Paul's words are doctrine for the Gentile-led church age. All scripture is God-breathed, and all of it is useful for doctrine, reproof, learning about God, and so on. However, not all of it applies in the same way at all times. Context. Context is king in biblical interpretation, and Paul's letters are specifically designed for this dispensation in time. And that's the end of our... First to your three references, uh, the, the Paul's, the Gentile right. calling, yep. Acts uh, 22-21. Acts 22-21. When he's talking to the Jews, right. he said he... When I was sent to the Gentiles, they listened up to that point, then they all went crazy. That's right. X <laughs> I mean, that's a paraphrase. That's okay. Good paraphrase. <laughs> X twenty two twenty one. That's a, good. Add that into your list. Okay, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to get into your word. We thank you so very much for the lessons that it gives us, imparts to us, and it just fills our hungry souls and uh, I'm so thankful that it comes to mind right now that uh, we have Burke here who's so capable of leading us to uh, verses that I don't even think of when I'm doing these analysis. And then I'm thankful for Sergio, who shares the word with me each morning from Israel. And we can talk to each other and we can share in the word and then just come across wonderful insights that your word is telling us, the glory of what has happened in redemptive history and uh, the coming of Christ and how everything pointed to that. And here we are celebrating in what he has done for us, what you did through him for us, oh God. We thank you for that. We thank you and we praise you for it. And we will always, for all eternity, be singing of the grace of Jesus Christ. It is not by our works, but by your loving hand in redemptive history, taking care of us through the giving of your son. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you and we exalt you. And we do so in his beautiful and glorious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
It's perfect. It worked. I, did you see I could shift in the chair today? It was great. It was the best day of my life. Okay. <laughs>